Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. This year, registration for the Numinous School opens June 1st, and there are a limited number of spots available. So if you'd like to get on the wait list, go to my website, carmenspaniola.com. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking once again with John Michael Greer. Why? Because he is not an everyday folk. He is a highly unique, I would describe him as iconoclastic folk, and uh He just knows a thing or two about a thing or two. Today, we are talking about his book, Monsters, An Investigator's Guide to Magical Beings. Now, if you've never heard of John Michael Greer, you'd never read any of his other titles, and you just scanned this book uh, on the shelf at your local bookstore, you may be tempted to write it off. But if you've listened to any of my shows with John, you know that he's not taking this lightly and he is not approaching this like every other kind of woo person out there. So if you're sort of a woo skeptic like me, I think this one's going to be fascinating. I was quite prepared to not really love this book. I thought, okay, this is where John and I kind of diverge. No, (laughs) I'm really with him in this book. I think the way he's written it is extremely pragmatic and uh, very down to earth, very grounded. And, uh, there's not a whiff of woo, really. I mean, I don't know. Listen to this conversation and, and maybe some of the terminology, some of the stories, you know, might raise your hairs a little bit, but uh, read the book, man. It's very hard to argue with his logic. So without further ado, here's John and I in conversation about monsters. So John, what identities do you lead with? Um, this time, interesting question. Um, I would say at this point, just now I'm leading with the identity of um, a student of occultism and the mysteries. And beyond that, I'm obviously a writer and a researcher, somebody who spends a lot of time figuring out how to take strange concepts and put them into words that people can understand. Since, you know, that's that's my day job, but it's also my avocation and it's something that, uh, that works for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I'm so glad you do it because you have such a vast uh, body of work now. And today we're going to focus on your book called Monsters. Now you said Mm -hmm. in other places in your writings that the tools of science can't really be used to understand the nature of spiritual matters and vice versa, or I'm Mm -hmm. very, very broadly paraphrasing. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what were the challenges of writing a handbook on supernatural phenomena? And then why did you choose to do it nonetheless? Okay. Well, now I, I'm going to answer that. To, I'm going to flip that around and answer the first part, the second question first, because the motivation came before the wrestling with the the issues that were involved. I was a fan of monster lore when I was still in, in a sing, in single digit ages. I was. I mean, I was an expert on werewolf trivia by the age of ten. I was really deeply crazy into monsters all kinds of monsters. If it was in the movies, it it didn't matter. Um, Later on in my teen years, um, books on unexplained phenomena, um, I'm thinking specifically here, John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies, which was a very, almost a transformative experience when I read that. Just the the recognition that the world really is a lot weirder, a lot more complex, and it's a lot richer 
than the sort of uh, scientific materialist viewpoint would claim. Mm-hmm. It, it was it was it moved me a great deal, but it also it also really helped open my mind. And <clears throat> so after I had I had done several books for for Llewellyn, the publishing company that, that I published with first, um, that were more or less focused on on ceremonial magic specifically. I was thinking, okay, what am I going to do? And the idea of doing a book on that end of, of unexplained phenomena, that end of, of the the unofficial reality, if you will, the kind of reality that isn't accepted by the official spokespeople um, of, our, of our culture, um, that jumped up. And I was going, oh, well, that would be really cool. And so I contacted the, the, my, my, the acquisitions editor and said, I want to do a book on monsters. And they were really cool about it. They say, yeah, let's do a book on monsters. Then... <clears throat> that's of course when the rubber hit the road when I actually had to write the thing <laughs> and um, I had the great advantage uh, at the time I was living in Seattle I had access to a big university library I was able to get a lot of folklore material um, I mean for, just a, as an example it's one thing to write about vampires when all you've got are pop culture stereotypes but there were books in, in the University of Washington library that discussed vampire lore in Transylvanian culture, mm. what do Transylvanians think vampires are like? Well, you know, I was going, okay, this I need. So that that was great. But all the while, I was basically having to deal with the, you know, the fact that scientific materialism and the set of intellectual tools that it's evolved, powerful those those are, only work on replicable replicable phenomena dealing with matter. Mm-hmm. Okay, matter only to a limited extent. Energy. I mean, you, you, it's it. I, I understand they have just fairly recently um, demonstrated ball lightning in the laboratory. Mm-hmm. This is, sounds sounds like a like a, a tangent, but ball lightning was something people have been experiencing it for thousands and thousands of years. But scientists were insisting it can't exist. We don't know any phenomenon that will allow it to exist, and we're literally telling anyone who witnessed it, "You're lying." Until they finally succeed. Of course, it was it was it started to be videotaped once people once you got a situation where most people are carrying around phones that can take videos. Mm. All of a sudden, there were all these videos, and the scientists were going, "Uh," and then somebody figured out how to replicate it. So now, um, now ball lightning has been tentatively admitted to the category of things that officially exist. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So matter the the techniques we use to understand the material world are very specific to the material world what i mean when you when you look at matter what do you, matter stays put or if it moves it moves in predictable ways and matter is replicable you can you know it does the same thing matter is not that smart it doesn't have a it, there, i mean there's intelligence in everything don't get me wrong but material objects unless they have something else ensouling them the intelligence is very predictable and you don't and it doesn't do a lot so you can do experiment you can do experiments and you can count on you mix two chemicals together and you're going to get more or less the same result every time that's less true as you start getting into the subtler realms of being. Once the life force enters the picture, you do the same thing to three different cats. They'll run in three different directions. Okay. Right. And as you move further and further toward the spiritual realm, the more unpredictable everything gets and the more impossible it becomes to use the tools of science. Mm-hmm. So, so you see, that's, that's the trap. The scientific materialism falls into it's you know it's like the old joke about the kid the the three year old with a hammer for whom everything looks like a nail. If all you've got are the tools of experimental science, then you're going to insist that matter's the only thing real because matter's the only thing that you can pound on with your hammer. Mm. And so, 
what I what I found as I began to evolve, partly as I began to evolve a toolkit for working with these these accounts, people's experiences with with um, preternatural beings, um, and partly as I researched other people's work in the same field, because of course there's been a lot of work done on that, is that you have to use a different toolkit. You have to start by taking taking the witnesses seriously. You have to start by taking folklore and tradition seriously. Mm-hmm. You have to say, okay. What you know, people have been saying this for thousands of years. Maybe there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes a very different kind of study, a study that has a lot more to do with with like the study of folklore and the, and of like history. You know, where we can't we can't reproduce of uh, the Battle of Waterloo say 15 times to see if it all comes out the same way. All we've got is the evidence that it took place. And so we can draw our conclusions from that. So, so that's, these are some of the issues that I wrestled with while I was in the process of writing the book Monsters. Mm-hmm. And this was about 10 years ago, is that right? Let's see, no, Monsters, Monsters was get, the original version of it getting on, it's about 18 years. I think it came out in what, two, 2001, right around then. Okay, and of all the books you've written, how has it done in terms of commercial success? Um, this is still far and away my most successful book. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I well, just love that. <laughs> now, the thing is, most, most of my titles are fairly specialized. Mm-hmm. I, I think some of them are very good, but um, you know, if, you're, if you're not interested in, say, um, geomantic divination, if you're not interested in ceremonial magic, if you're not interested in druid philosophy, you're probably not going to pick up this book or that book or the other book. Everyone's interested in monsters. <laughs> it's so true. Everybody's okay. interested in monsters. And so I think everybody would benefit from having a, a bit of a baseline understanding then of what you mean when you're saying monsters. So let's begin. Um, how about you explain and describe a bit about each of the subtle bodies? What are those? Okay. Now, th- this, is a, this is a bit of a cult philosophy. And it's, it's, let's start by saying, that as with every other human way of thinking about things, it's a metal model. We, we very easy get, easily get caught up in this notion of confusing our mental models with reality. We don't know what's actually out there. We've got these models that we use so that, you know, for example, we talk about a force called gravity. Nobody's ever seen it. We just know its effects, okay? We can calculate it. In the same way, occultists from thousands of years have been working out a set of models to make sense of aspects of human experience that aren't material. And the subtle bodies, that, that's, that's one of the classic models here. The idea is basically, we, we all know about our physical body. I hope all of us know, know about our physical bodies. Okay. So we, we've got a physical body. It's got organs. It's got you know, skin and bones and muscles and, and, and icky stuff of various kinds. And that's, that's our existence on the physical plane. Okay. The occult model is that there's a series of other planes. You can divide them in different ways. I pr- the system I prefer uses five levels above, immediately above, above metaphorically. These are not like mm-hmm. stacked like layers of, of a wedding cake, mm-hmm. but it helps to think of it as stretched on a line going from the densest um, level, which is matter, to the subtlest, highest level, which is spirit. So we go to the next, the next subtler body which, and the next subtler plane of being, which is the etheric body. That's a word, that's a term for what, um, you know, everybody has a word for it. This is the life force. This is key. This is prana. This is the force. George Lucas ripped that off from, from Asian mysticism. Mm-hmm. Every, every language on earth practically has a word for it, except the languages of the modern industrial Western world. 
Mm. We're dumb about this, okay? Mm -hmm. But yeah, so the etheric, the etheric plane, the etheric body, that's our body of life force. It shapes our health. It, it's, our, it's our body of vitality. It has direct effects on the physical world. Um, martial artists use it to shatter, you know, concrete blocks with their bare hands. Acupuncturists use it to, you know, that's what flows to the meridians, and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. That's the etheric one. Next level subtler is what's called the astral body, or the body of concrete consciousness. You've heard of astral projection. Everyone's heard of astral projection. That consists of taking basically most of the astral body outside the physical body and traveling around in it. This is the body that actually mediates consciousness into, into matter. This is the body that you feel with, that you think with most, most of the time, that you experience the world through. Um, so that's that's that. The next level up is the is what's called the mental body. At this point, we're starting to get at a point into, into a stage where body is a little bit of a shaky term because <laughs> um, the mental body doesn't really exist in space and time as we know it. It is the it is the body of consciousness itself. As the astral body allows us to be conscious of the world. Um, the mental body is consciousness itself. It's that's when we understand something. You know, you're you're plotting through some. Um, you know, so some lesson or something, and all of a sudden, oh, I see what they're getting at. The metal body is just kicked in. Mm. You've, you've connected that. That's the that's the, the part of you that makes connections, that understands. And then there's a spiritual body, which is the the essential core of yourself, the the part of you that 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 exists eternally. So those are your basic five bodies. You've got, there are five levels of being, physical, etheric, astral, mental, spiritual. And just as there are, just as human beings have bodies on all five of these levels, all other material things have bodies on all five of these levels. And then there are other things that don't have bodies of a material nature, but have um, some you know, of the others. And that's mm -hmm. where life gets interesting. Right. And so this is what I love about your book, Monsters, because uh, you spend quite a lot of time connecting the dots between how is it that we can have lore about vampires, werewolves, um, Sasquatch, uh, uh, Chimera, you know, all, mermaids, fey folk, all of these different sort of um, non-ordinary beings. Mm -hmm. and, and how are we able to perceive them? So, so let's focus for a little bit here on the etheric body mm -hmm. that comes up a lot in terms of how to determine what you're dealing with if you encounter something non-ordinary in this monster category let's say and and what it could also be mistaken for and possible um i don't know what you you know treatments or or responses mm -hmm. if it's becoming problematic right yeah, yeah. A lot of what's going on in the monstrous realm has to do with etheric phenomena of one kind or another, and in fact, many of the things you can do to protect yourself should you have to do so um, do do have to do with the etheric plane. Okay, so let's kind of back up. You start in the book talking about vampires. It's totally fascinating. I, I, we're not going to be able to, you know, explain what every single phenomena is and how to deal with it. People have to buy the book. I fully recommend that they do. But let's begin with this very important moment. And, and can you describe then what is the second death? Okay, that's we, we've actually laid all the foundations for that, so this is great. This, now, the first death is the one we all know about. That's the one where your physical body stops working, and you separate from it. Okay, there's your physical body lying on the gurney. You are not in it anymore. What are you in? You're in the other four bodies, the etheric, 
astral, mental, and spiritual. Now, before you can go on to the afterlife state, you also have to, you know, to finish this transitional process, you have to shed your etheric body. The etheric body doesn't last from life to life. That's, that's part of, you know, its, it's life is tied up with the life of the physical realm. And so the second death is when you drop the etheric body and then you're just, you're just existing at that point in three bodies, astral, mental, and spiritual. And then you go on to the afterlife process from which in the, in the standard occult teaching, you then reincarnate, develop a new etheric body, develop a new physical body. Mm. So the second death is very often where things go hinky in the, <laughs> in the, in the you know, in the, the process of dying. Normally, normally it's no problem getting, you know, dying is like being born. We all do it. Um, we've all done it many times according to cult tradition. And, but in both cases, you know, things can go wrong in the process of getting, of um, getting born. Things can go wrong in the process of dying. And sometimes that can have consequences. Right. So in general, a person who's mm -hmm. having a uh, anticipated or just natural death in general, most people can make this, you know, transition and, there, and, and we may have encounters with the etheric body or, you know, you, you do talk a lot about ghosts and different kinds in the book, mm -hmm. but, but the monsters seem to, um, if, if it's problems with this etheric death or sorry, this uh, second death, it, they, it, you do say in a few cases, it's like there's a shock trauma or something, mm -hmm. you know, some, some bewilderment seems to happen yeah. at that time. However, with vampires, there was actually, so in this case, there's some very unique lore here that you, you mm -hmm. look up about, mm -hmm. well, there's, there's burial processes, there's, there's uh, ancestor worship, there are these factors that could lead a living person to intentionally want to avoid the second death. Yeah. So let's oh, yeah. let, uh, let's kind of come into the vampire conversation with you, maybe guiding us through this idea of the etheric revenant. Okay, great. Um, first of all, all of our listeners, you know, you can get it out of your system. You can all say blah with you know the the sort of Sesame Street. Uh, I'm the count. I love the count. We all <laughs> we all have that kind of vampire thought in our minds. Okay, the, acknowledge that honor that, send it off to bite someone else's neck, okay? This is not what we're talking about. <laughs> okay. Um, to really understand what's going on here, we have to go back a very, very long ways. This is something that I've been doing further research on, so I'm going to go a little be, bit beyond what's, what's covered in the book there. Um, in a, at, a, at, at a very ancient time, there was a set of processes that were practiced over much of the ancient world that where certain people under certain circumstances would withdraw from the cycle of incarnation for an extended period. Um, there were actually survivals of this practice um, as late as the, 19, the early 19th century in Japan. And I think in a few other places as well, we're not really sure. But the idea was basically you would voluntarily, typically an old person, would voluntarily die in a very slow, controlled, meditative fashion. And they would be, they, their body would be mummified. There are certain ways to do it, especially if you if you slowly starve yourself to death. That makes it very easy. And they would remain as a guardian spirit for an extended period. The body would be placed in, um, typically back in the day, in one of the old barrows. You know, these earth-sheltered stone masses, very heavily sheltered from, from certain energies and so on. And they would become the guardian spirit of a community, of a family, possibly even of a, of a nation, as, as small nations were in those days. So that was... 
that was something that was done that was a that was a very holy a very um demanding a very spiritually important practice back in the ancient time back in these very very ancient times we're talking 10,000 years ago hmm. now human beings being human beings you know as well as i do that what happened was that people started going ooh i cannot die and people got really stupid about that mm. because, you know, the idea is, no, no, I'm, it's not it's not that I'm going to go into this act as an active service. I'm going to go into this so that I can I can, you know, like maintain, keep my personality intact. I don't have to go through the afterlife process. I can stay me. And, you know, I'm the guardian spirit. I can tell people what to do. People get stupid that way. So you have the the gradual movement from the going into the earth to become a guardian spirit as a sacrificial act, as a holy thing, to this, on the one hand, this kind of um, reenactment of that without any understanding that was done increasingly with the bodies of the of like kings and, and nobles mm. and so on. So you get you go from the long barrows to the round barrows in Britain. You have monuments of misplaced energy like the pyramids of Egypt, which were intended to do kind of the same thing, to keep the personality of the pharaoh intact for an extended period. Mm. And Eventually, you end up um, in Egypt and many other places, you end up with a situation where society has become totally structured around um, catering to the dead. Mm. And then sooner or later, that breaks down and you have what amounts to rebellions of the living against the dead. And you have tombs being destroyed. You have people just stopping doing the sacrifices that provide additional etheric energy to keep things going. It was a messy scene. Um, out of that, you have the con you have the approach, which is very common all over the the classical world, of burning, cremation of dead bodies. Rather than rather, you don't entomb them anymore. You don't put them in a nice earth sheltered stone cairn where the, their etheric body can be sheltered from the second death. You burn them so they're gone. Hmm. They go on to the afterlife, and. <clears throat> In a few places, people who wanted to, where there was enough lore to, to maintain this, um, people who wanted to keep on trying to dodge the second death, this process gradually devolved into a set of practices, a set of disciplines you could do in life, with the thought that you would become, uh, you, you would enter into this, into the state of etheric revenant. Basically, for the four bodies without the fifth, you have your physical body still, ang still in there, underground. You've got to have it in its native soil. This may start sounding. That doesn't mean that you have to like carry around a lump of Transylvanian earth wherever you go. The point is <laughs> you're in a, you're sheltered by the soil. Mm -hmm. You're sheltered from from the etheric radiations of the sun, which will um, cause the second death in short order if you're not careful. So you have your preserved body, and then the other four you the other four bodies of you have to go, are, you know can go about your business, except your business consists of getting as much etheric energy as you can. And the nearest available source is other people. And so you become parasitic. You become mm. a predator. Mm. You become a vampire. You don't drink blood, by the way. Right. Is, that never this comes is, up. This is like Bella Lugosi. This is Hollywood stuff. This yeah. is not Bella Lugosi. Nor right. is it that what's a twink, the twinkly vampire out in the Pacific Northwest. You know, that, it's none of that stuff. Okay. Right. Yeah, we are, we are not talking this, that sort of stuff. Blah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. If, and actually, if you read vampire accounts, from Transylvania, from the parts of the Eastern Europe where vampire lore continued until very late times, or from China, by the way, which has a very rich vampire lore all its own. Um, they don't drink blood. They suck your life force. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Now, it looks very similar if you've ever seen somebody who's lost a lot of life energy in a hurry. They're pale, they're waxy, they are, they are weak. They look like all the blood's drained out of them. Now, they still got their blood, but they don't have any life force left. And so the, the, the confusion is understandable. But so basically what we're talking about is a predatory ghost, mm-hmm. a being who has deliberately pursued this, this hope of, of prolonging his or her life beyond the grave by preying on other people. That's a vampire. It's nothing romantic. It's no, you know, so many people these days, the media makes vampires into this sexy business, you know. Um, it's not. They're about as sexy as a blood-sucking leech. Mm-hmm. So there is a connection, sort of philosophically, between an authentic vampire and a psychic vampire. But we use these terms, you know, as metaphors. But, but how, what would, how would you describe the similarities and the differences between the two? Um, well, the first, the major difference is that a psychic vampire is still alive. Mm-hmm. An, actual, an actual traditional vampire is dead physically dead their body is their body is underground no longer breathing heart no longer beats you know um, no vital vital signs at zero dead okay a psychic vampire is alive um a psychic vampire however for one reason or another either cannot or does not um tap into the normal flow of etheric energy that keeps all of us um otherwise happy and bouncing um and and alive and so drains etheric energy from other people um some people are just some people are just wired that way. Other people learn to do it, and um, I don't. I haven't dealt with a lot of psychic vampires. Um, I have. I've talked to some people. I know. I know several people. Um, the Michelle Belanger, who's a, who's a very active figure in the occult community, um, is herself one, and also deals with a, a range of others. We discuss the matter now and again, mm-hmm. but. You know, it's it's something some people are stuck with, and in that case, you want to, you know, if if at all possible, you want to find people who just radiate life force out of every pore, and you can be around them and be happy. Mm-hmm. So, so a psychic vamp, so a psychic vampire can, I mean, it, you can have perfectly consensual psychic vampirism. On the other hand, some psychic vampires are predators. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of them are they don't care, they they're not interested in consent, they just want to drain you. Right. And in that case, you need to, you know, there are ways to prevent that. And it's a really good idea. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So back to what, what I'm calling the authentic vampire, the actual dead. The actual dead, the actual dead vampire. Yeah. The predatory etheric revenant. That's right. That's right. So now that we don't use um, sort of really fortified burial mounds or, you know, pyramids, cairns, and very few people, in, at least in the Western world, have these strong traditions of ancestral worship, feeding the ancestors, you know. Um, so admittedly, this could be rare, but in which modern conditions might some unlucky person come into contact with an actual vampire? Your chances of doing that at this point in the world today are just incredibly small. Um, the only way that I could think of doing that is if somebody, if somebody purposely set out to recreate the practices and made arrangements for their body to be buried without being embalmed. Now, this is something the, the the embalming thing. That's the fact that that um, laws in most states of the union require embalming is a very good thing because when you flood the body with formaldehyde and you know embalming fluid all cellular life stops 
immediately. Mm-hmm. The, etheri- the, the, the etheric bond, the connection between the body and the etheric body, the physical and etheric body is broken. End of vampire. Um, I suppose you could do an interesting vampire movie with, where instead of running around with stakes, they're running with big syringes full of embalming fluid. Right. But, yeah, it's but, a medical yes, drama. But, Medical, yeah, medical drama. <laughs> but, um, but basically, yeah, somebody would have to really go all out to make that thing happen, and then hope they could, you know, get enough um, willing victims, mm-hmm. and or you know, just the convenient victims, and, and that nobody knew any of the old tricks, which admittedly most people don't these days. Right. Um, barring that. Barring, I don't know, there might be immigrant communities either from China or from Eastern Europe in the United States that um, might possibly preserve enough of the lore to make that a possibility. Mm-hmm. But it's been, it's been frankly a couple of centuries since there have been a, you know, any significant amount of vampire vampirism even reported in the United States. Right. So, so it's really being kept alive by Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No. Yeah. And, and so I, I have to say Hollywood vampires put a stake through them, please. <laughs> right. Let's be done. Okay. But let's talk about though, we're relatively speaking then, can, let's just understand encountering any monster is going to be, you know, relatively rare experience in the average person's life. However, there are monsters such as werewolves that where you don't have to have that, that, um, intention to be predatory you could have a lot of different reasons why a person might practice that so let's talk a little bit about um how the etheric body is relevant to werewolf lore and and if at some point you could just talk about why are full moons more conducive for the etheric body of werewolves to take on that animal form and their abilities by the way i just kind of Mm -hmm. love to have you guide us through Oh, sure. The werewolf sure. situation. Yeah. Well, let's, I, I want to I stress, werewolves get all the press, but in fact, there are traditions from around the world of people taking on a whole range of animal shapes. And all of this is also done in the etheric body. This is actually something Eliphas Levy, who, was the, who kick-started the, French occult, or the, the Western occult revival back in the 1850s, brilliant Frenchman, one of the first modern writers on magic, he caught on to this right off the bat in his book, uh, The Doctrine and Ritual of High Magic, which I helped translate a little while ago. Um, he, he goes through traditional werewolf stories from France. France had a lot of werewolf stories back in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. And he notes that very, very often when you, um, when there's a werewolf running around, look around, you'll find somebody, a perfectly ordinary human being in what looks like a coma curled up under a bush somewhere. Okay. The, the the lawn chain. This is again, you know, again, we are not talking about just as we were not talking about. I am, you know, I'm called the count because I love to count or any of this kind of vampire stuff. If your idea of a werewolf is lawn chainy, um, you toss him a poppy biscuit and send him away. This mm-hmm. is not what we're talking about. Okay. Or for many Nobody people, is gonna, that other Taylor guy. Or whoever you know, he was guy. in some, yeah, so in the Twilight thing. You know, they think of werewolves, yeah. they think of some hot young guy. Yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah. But. But the thing is, the whole idea of, you know, you suddenly have the, the ultimate bad hair day and so you start sprouting fur from every pore and you turn into the, you know, monster kind of thing. Um, as far as I know, that doesn't happen. As far as I know, it's impossible. You, you know, that kind of physical transformation. We're in the physical plane. And one thing to keep in mind, physical, material science, standard 
material, scientific materialism, when you're dealing with matter, it usually works. It's when you're dealing with the non-material that you have to say, um, sorry, Mr. Tyson, you need to go talk to someone else. Um, so what happens, what, what's going on with shape-shifting generally, with werewolves and their equivalents, is another effect, effect of the etheric body. We've all heard of astral projection. Not so many people are familiar with etheric projection. It is possible to take a certain amount of your etheric body, of that body of life force that we all have, and detach it. And under certain circumstances, give it a shape other than yours. It's a lot easier to take on an animal shape than it is a human shape if you have um, a physical a, a physical tie, some kind of physical object. One of the classic things in the werewolf days is a belt of wolf skin. Mm. Okay, So you have that genetic template. You have that energetic template that enables you to do that. Now, why the full moon? The moon governs the tides of etheric energy on the earth just as it governs the tides of water. When the moon is full and and up, the, there's a lot of etheric energy. When the moon is new, it's very, very weak. So you have that constant monthly rise and fall of etheric energy. Back in, in my misspent youth, when I was before I broke, broke into print, I used to work in nursing homes for a while. I was a nurse's aide. And we all knew that full moon was when all the patients who had bad Alzheimer's would be really rambunctious. They'd be constantly trying to you know, get up and do things. They'd be really confused. They'd be talking all night. At the new moon, everybody was basically passed out. <laughs> it was as regular as clockwork. My understanding from people who have worked in um, mental health facilities, exactly the same way. When the moon is full, people are crazy. When the moon is new, everyone's catatonic. Right. That's Lunacy. the function of this. Lunacy, exactly. That's why they mm-hmm. called it that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that basically the full moon, you've got these floods of etheric energy. And so you can tap into that. You can detach this portion of your own energy. You can draw in more etheric energy from the world around you, pouring down from the moon. You can use that template in the wolf skin belt or what have you to make a wolf body of, a ther- of life force. And then you can pop your own consciousness into it. Your physical body stays passed out under a bush or something. Mm-hmm. and then, But you are in a body that is that is almost physical because the etheric body, remember, it's right next to the physical realm. And then you go trot, go trotting off to howl at the moon if you want to. Right. And other people As, can perceive this. Oh yeah. Yeah. The thing is human beings perceive the etheric plane very, very easily. Um, back in the day, um, we, back in the day, we used to talk about vibes, man. <laughs> You know, the vibes, yeah, the vibes of that party were really cool. I mean, the vibe was really great until this guy came in and it got really heavy. It was, now, there, there were reasons why a lot of people were unusually perceptive to that. Uh, certain, certain chemicals will do that to you. But, um, but everybody has this experience all the time. We all know what it's like to have somebody walk in the room and feel the chill, just go, ugh. You know, or what have you. Alternatively, somebody walks in the room and everyone's looking at them all of a sudden because, you know, whoa, watch out. Mm. A lot of that is etheric. A lot of that has to do with that life energy. Mm. And so places have it, people have it. We, we all perceive it all the time. And very often we perceive it through senses that are parallel to, the, to our physical senses. Mm. When you see a ghost, you're not seeing it with your eyes, which is why very often ghosts don't show up on cameras. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't reflect physical light, but your etheric vision. You see it. It's there. And similarly, similarly with werewolves, people will see it. Mm-hmm. If you really put, if you really put work into this thing and get your an etheric body of transformation, which is what the technical term here, if you get it it's really, really solid, it will attract 
like dust and small amounts of matter into it, it'll leave footprints. This is reminding me of the potlatch tradition with the mask dances of the Coast Salish uh, nations around where I live. And I was just talking with my friend, Jessie, who's of the Kwakwakwak Nation. And she said, you know, a lot of the anthropologists and settlers, when they hear about the potlatch and the mask dances, they think that it's a metaphor, but it's not. You know, oh, no. when it's the cannibal dance, everybody in the big house is wearing the red cedar bark around their head for protection because mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. this person mm -hmm. who's come back from initiation is a, is the cannibal person of the forest or you know is yeah, the cannibal yeah. and so the idea that we could perceive that and we could mm -hmm. do it even in in a communal sense you know, mm -hmm. you're not necessarily oh, yeah. all alone. And it's also reminded me, I mean, one of the things I love about your book, Monsters, is that you cite so many different um, cultures and countries and, and their different versions of this. Can you explain the, the origin of the term going berserk? Oh yeah, this is this was one of the one of the aspects. Let, let's I'm going to step back a little bit here because what we have in medieval werewolf lore is again a remnant of something much richer and more complex further back in time, um, and so the the berserk technique. Um, there there were actually two two different sets of traditions. There were the berserker and the ulfenar. Okay, these this is in Viking times. These are the these are the Norse, the people who live in what's now Scandinavia. We think of Scandinavia as being very peaceful and this kind of stuff. This is the place where the Vikings came from. Okay, <laughs> to loot and kill and rob at all. So one of the things that was part of their religion at that day, one and some people got deep into this, was a set of disciplines where they would literally take on this kind of uh, etheric body of transformation, either of a wolf, that's the Ulfenar, or a bear, the berserker. Okay. And they, you know, they the a, a berserker had literally the word literally means a bear shirt, okay. They had a shirt of bear of, of bear hide with the fur on. They would put that thing on. They would do certain disciplines. They would go into trance, and they would project themselves into this uh, a bear body of transformation, which was solid enough to crush people's heads in. <laughs> They'd do it, mm -hmm. and. Then the thing, the thing that you would do, the, the ones in, in historical times, certainly what you would typically do is be active in both bodies at once and have both bodies in the same place. So here's your big, your big guy in the, in the hairy shirt, and he builds up the bare body around him, and he's moving in both bodies at once. And this guy's crashing into the enemy. Okay, the enemy is in trouble unless they have, unless they have some pretty fair... Um, juju of their own <laughs> um, which they typically did of course mm -hmm. so yeah but the thing is this kind of stuff the, the, these traditions go back a long ways they're found all over the world um people taking on different animal forms in trance states and in many cases manifesting these kinds of of non of, of paraphysical um forms that can actually affect matter hmm. so yeah um Obviously, I don't know. Uh, all I know about the um, the traditional dances of the Northwest Coast are, you know, what I was able to read as as a white person. Mm -hmm. um, now, the University of Washington had a lot of really good anthropological material in it, mm -hmm. and so I did read a certain amount. I also knew some people who were connected with um, with um, a Coast Salish teacher who was in Seattle at the time when I was living there, and had some kind of nods and hints. And yeah, you can put that in, mm -hmm. but. <laughs> but beyond that, um, 
I figure they've got their mysteries. It's not my business. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, so now there's other there are other kinds of uh, monsters that you cite in your book that are not all necessarily in this um, particularly scary or demonic camp. You talk about mermaids. You you know. You, however, there's a whole category of fae folk or the world of fairy, and. Um, one of the points that you make in the book, uh, and there's a very bittersweet uh, tale of the these boys seeing uh, fairy folk on horses leaving, saying, mm -hmm. you know, "Can't live here anymore." The fair folk will the fair folk will never again be seen in Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it made me so sad. So, so a lot of it seemed to be about um, habitat, you know. And so, in light of habitat depletion impacting the prevalence of fae folk in different parts of the world. Do you think that there's any way to bring them back? Like if we restore habitat, is there a way to, to invite them to return to the land? If you, if you're, if you're settled on land that has, you know, has, has been um, rendered um, spiritually bereft because things have been flattened and all of that, what, how could a person restore that? And do you think they would come back? Oh, yes. Um, what you need to do, first of all, um, now, first of all, you have to remember that um, when you're dealing, the Fae, whatever they are, and we really don't know, they, they seem to be a, an evolution, to use the technical term, that is distinct from ours. They are unquestionably intelligent beings. They do not have physical bodies as we know them. Um, the Reverend Robert Kirk, who was a Scottish clergyman um, back in the 17th century, actually wrote a very extensive book on them. And um, the the secret commonwealth is the title of it. And he it's and such he, a charming like I would love if that was a new novel for young kids. You think so? <laughs> yeah, but the secret commonwealth. It's it's his he because he he was he was active in Scotland and he was fairly broad minded for a Scots clergyman at the time and he was really interested in the fairy folk and he became convinced that they were real and spent a lot of time. Um, talking to people who had the second sight and could see them mm -hmm. and talking to people who had family stories and family traditions of dealing with them. And he wrote this very extensive study of how they interact with human beings. Um, well worth it's, it's available in English, in, in modern English, I should say, mm -hmm. <laughs> English translation. It was, it was written in 17th century Scots dialect, of course, which is a little mm -hmm. challenging for most people uh, yeah. nowadays, but it's, 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 very, it's very well worth reading. But yeah, his, his idea was, he, he, he was very much interested in, put, in making sure we're aware. These are intelligent beings. They make their own decisions. You can't say, do this and they will do that. Very mm -hmm. tricksy. They don't do what we want them to unless they want to. Mm -hmm. That said, that said, there are several ways to that where you can interact with beings like this and um, have a fairly good likelihood of establishing good relations, and that would include you know bringing bringing them back to an area which they had temporarily abandoned. And remember, temporarily, as far as there we, I mean, our civilization has been on the North American land for a very short time, and I think the way it's going, it's not going to be on the North American land for more than a very short time in the future. Mm -hmm. um, we are busy. We are hard at work destroying ourselves in the classic fashion. And so, you know, it's not going to be that many more decades before the highways are abandoned and cars are rusting lumps. And um, those of us who are still around are going to be living in a much simpler way. That's just, you know, if you know anything about history, you know, civilizations rise and then they go down. 
So mm-hmm. that's that's over to one side. But if you're looking at for the time being for our lifetimes right now, the first thing to do, of course, is to is, is habitat restoration, just physical habitat restoration. Um, that's rendered a little more complex now that the climate belts are changing as drastically mm-hmm. as they are because you can't necessarily say, well, what grew here 100 years ago? That habitat belt may be 200 miles north by now. Mm-hmm. Um, but you basically try, try to get natural vegetation back. Mm-hmm. And if there are some, in, quote, invasive species, unquote, that's normal. Ecologically mm-hmm. speaking, that's normal. So don't worry about that too much as long as it doesn't choke everything else out. Mm-hmm. Um, but you want to make sure that, that – and it's habitat – it's not, oh, I'm going to put in a garden with everything that I want. Mm-hmm. But take that word I and just kind of bracket it for a while. What does the land want? Mm-hmm. There's a skill that people, that, that um, good gardeners and especially people who are really in tune with nature tend to get of listening to the land and getting a sense of what it wants. Mm-hmm. And if you can learn that and you listen to that and just try to let it grow in various ways, bring back the vegetation, may, don't let the, you know, the, the, oh, this week the media is all saying we need this kind of uh, favorable, blah, blah, blah. You know, no, ignore, ignore what the media says. Listen to the land. Learn what used to grow there. Learn what grows the next climate band further mm-hmm. south and mm-hmm. just kind of flow with it. And. One of the crucial things is set aside at least a small portion of it where you are going to keep your grubby hands off it. Mm. You plant the things, you maybe even put a little border or something or a little fence and you leave it alone. Because Mm -hmm. the fairies, by all the traditional lore, they like, they don't, you know, they're perfectly willing to interact with human beings, but they like their privacy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they like to, they like, they like areas that do not have, um, the human energy in them. In in some in some Native American traditions, it when when you went to seek your totem, your tomanawas, um, the guardian spirit that you had, you had to go to a place where people don't go, mm-hmm. because you had had to be a place that didn't have that human energy in it. And they, they, as usual, they knew exactly what they were doing. Um, so that's what you're looking for. You want to set aside a place that is not going at least part of the part of that property that's off limits even to you. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. purely for them. Now, if you live in an area where um, there are traditions about um, fairy folk of various kinds, and that's true of much of America, by the way. The, the Native Americans had a great deal of lore about creatures that were extremely similar to the fairy of, of Europe and so on. The little um, earth if you, people? The little, the little earth people, yes, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. Um, there, there, the bibliography of the book gives a, um, gives a book called American Elves, which is about Native American fairy lore. Really good. Um, but so if you can find out what, the, what are their preferences. Mm-hmm. If you're in Europe, let's say there, there are certain things, hawthorn trees. They adore hawthorn trees. You plant hawthorns there. Mm-hmm. So especially in the place where, you, where that you're setting aside for them, if, you can, if there are plants that they like or things like that, you plant that and then keep your rubbing hands off it. And then it's, you know, it's like trying to attract birds. The birds <laughs> will show up if they want to show up. You can invite them. You can make conditions um, really great for them, but they'll show up if they want to show up. Mm-hmm. And but, but typically, you know, you know, they're the birds. The birds travel a lot, and they will notice if there's an area that has habitat and shelter and food and water. And similarly, fairies will notice. Mm-hmm. And so you just it's in the meantime. By restoring habitat, turning it over to natural vegetation, leaving grubby hands off it, letting it go through its life cycle, you're going to get 
um, pollinators in, you're going to get animals in, you're going to rebuild the soil, um, you're going to have um, a space where the, natu the natural energies are going to flow more healthily. And whether or not you end up with that specific kind of non-physical showing up to, to inhabit it, you're going to be producing immense benefits for everybody in the area because mm -hmm. that kind of natural, the, the, the energies that you get from an area of just natural ground left to itself are very healing um, to humans, to all other living things, to the earth itself. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about some of the indoor fey folk. If I would like <laughs> to attract a brownie to my house, how could I how could I make that happen? Not because I want them to, you know, do magical things for me, just because I want that sort of company and 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 that that would just be so lovely. How can I attract a brownie? Uh, he, <coughs> even in um, traditional Scotland, when um, brownies and creatures of that nature were fairly common, you could detract one. They show up when they want to. Okay. <laughs> so You're all stuck. I can do is put I up mean, the welcome is, mat. All you can do is put up the welcome mat, and um, you know, uh, if you get the, there, there was the old tradition of leaving a little bowl of milk outside the back door. Ooh. Now that may attract neighborhood cats instead, <laughs> but. You know, I'm sure sure the brownies and cats will get along just fine. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, all you can do, that's the thing. As it's, we, we tend to fall into the trap in, in modern Western industrial, especially in America, but in modern Western industrial civilization generally. We tend to fall into the trap of thinking that we can, we can sort of accessorize our lives with whatever we want. Mm -hmm. And one of the great lessons that we all have to learn in dealing with the wider world, the world in which our, our civilization is a temporary pipsqueak phenomenon, is that most of the universe doesn't work that way. And they, there's no reason why it should. You know, if there doesn't happen to be a brownie looking for a home, you're out of luck. Mm -hmm. And it's just one of those things. Um, if you, you you may turn out to be one, you know one of the lucky ones, but you might not. Right. The important thing to do is to to act in a respectful way, in a respectful manner, um, toward all non harmful non physicals, and um, just try to interact with them in a, in a in a polite and friendly manner, and see what happens. You you know you may not you may not end up with a brownie. You may end up with something else in your back garden. <laughs> um, you have no way of knowing. <laughs> it's so true. Well, I, I will still set my hands to the task of uh, becoming a sanctuary uh, safe house for brownies on the run from habitat depletion. Now, let's move forward in time to more modern times. There was a very fascinating, um, very small section of the book, but uh, I just, this captured my imagination as a, as a child who loved Twilight Zone growing up. I remember one of the original <laughs> episodes with, um, uh, why can't I remember his name? You know, the guy who played uh, Captain Kirk. Oh, oh yeah. Um, Will Shatner. Captain Kirk. The great Kenny. Shatner. That's right. Who couldn't not so great at all. <laughs> exactly. And not even, doesn't sound like a great human, but he was in a, an, an early Twilight Zone episode, might have even been the first, where they had the gremlin oh, on the funny. wing. And, and so you say in the book that, uh, the early wooden airplanes that grem gremlins would sometimes like to inhabit those. And I just, I just was like, okay, let's jam on this just for two seconds. We can't possibly know 
exactly what their motivation was, but do you think they were just curious about flight? Do you think the gremlins were trying to dissuade humans from leaving the bounds of Earth? Like, why do you think gremlins were hanging out in okay. airplanes? Um, I'm going to I'm going to take a step back, which will give us the explanatory the information here, because it, I think there's something else going on here. I'm quite convinced it was very traditional back in the days when ships were made of wood for there to be ship spirits, very like gremlins. People saw them. Mariners all knew about them. It was standard. When the wooden ships were replaced with metal, they went away. Um, all the houses made of wood especially the ones that were made not from the sort of processed, um, manufactured plywood crap or this mm -hmm. kind of stuff, but the ones that were made from large chunks of trees, they very often had house spirits. Mm -hmm. Those went away when things, and in the same way, the, um, the, early, the earliest airplanes, airplanes through, through the First World War into the 1920s were generally made of wood, made by hand, typically, of wood, and they all had, they had gremlins. Um, they and you know, of course gremlins. People think of the movie, this kind of stuff. The traditional notion of a gremlin was that it is a little, um, vaguely humanoid, um, elf-ish sort of creature that is only found in an airplane, in an old wooden airplane, in, in a wooden airplane. I think it's a wood spirit. Oh, okay. In all these cases, you're taking a piece of a living tree and you're fashioning into this thing and what the ancient Greeks used to call a dryad, a tree spirit, okay? Mm -hmm. You've got that energy in there, okay? So the dryad's gonna take a new form and go, oh wow, this is kind of interesting, I wonder where it's going. Because you see, one of the things most people don't realize, a tree, when you look at a, a living tree, the only part of it that's actually physically alive is about a um, half inch in from the bark. Hmm. There's this skin of living tree and everything inside that is, is dry wood. I mean, there may be, there's, there's fluid going up and down in this kind of stuff, but it has no living cells in it. <laughs> and so, obviously, the, the, tree, the tree spirits that everybody speaks of in ancient folklore, um, they're used to inhabiting wood. And so, yeah, my guess is that basically what you're dealing with here is a wood spirit. It's wow. going, well, this is interesting. Ooh, cool, we're flying. <laughs> <laughs> but then they replace then they replace the then they replace the wood the wooden airplanes with um you know with metal girders and then you know they didn't have any any gremlins anymore. Wow, I, I am personally so think glad I asked. I'm so glad I asked because it just kind of it goes over you know it's like in this larger context in the book and it, for some reason it just jumped out at me. But that explanation makes a lot of sense to me. It's the only it's the only one I was able to come up with and I only I only realized what was going on because again the University of Washington library that I was pillaging for information had a great book on this particular tradition of ship spirits in the north in, among you know sailing vessels in the north sea and I was going wow that sounds like a gremlin oh oh I get it <laughs> yeah right okay so fascinating okay so I want to take us down now into some of the scary stuff, okay? Because you have a whole thing on ghosts and the different kinds of ghosts. And it made me uh, reflect on a situation I had with a client. And this is probably, <clears throat> no, I don't know, five, five or six years ago now. So forgive me that I, you know, some of the details are a little fuzzy. I can't remember what her answers were. So this is me coming to you for a case consult as if you were my clinical supervisor, John. Okay. <laughs> so, I actually came in contact with this woman because a friend of mine is a landlord and he had already changed the locks on this woman's apartment two times. 
because of unusual activity. And so at this point, he had uh, the third lock key, but nobody else did aside from her as the resident. And uh, she's a woman in her 60s, uh, uh, widowed, uh, military family. Her mm -hmm. daughters and her former husband, all uh, military. So very kind of linear thinkers, not a lot of woo-woo. That is for sure. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, she had a poltergeist. And mm -hmm. so there were so many examples of things being moved, you know, th oh, yeah, yeah. very obvious things moving around her apartment and it was getting annoying. And so she did all the usual things, change the locks, get, you know, forget giving anybody else a key. Um, and I met with her. She was a very sane person. And mm -hmm. there were other witnesses to these things. She had said her daughters and cousins and that sort of thing. However, in interviewing her, a couple of things stood out to me. So the first one, the first fact was at a pre previous home about 10 or 15 years earlier in her life, uh, and this was when her, her daughters were, you know, kids and teenagers, they were in an old Victorian home and for several years, there would be this situation with a music box. And uh, first they would hear the music and couldn't find it. Over the years, eventually, a music box appeared. And it would sometimes uh, move to the foyer of their home and just turn on at two or three in the morning. And this, they would put it away, they would lock it, they would do these things. They didn't throw it away, I don't know why, I totally would have, but they just kind of lived with it for years, but they were all skeptical and just strong, stout people. And so then they, then they move and leave the house and there's no activity. However, so in this new home, uh, this apartment that she'd been in for a few years, the poltergeist starts up. But what was the second interesting thing was she went across country to her daughter's house and there was poltergeist activity that seemed to follow her there and objects you know from her home put in a new person just weird stuff so i went to her house and we thought i, th I thought well you seem to be the common denominator so let's do a little trance work and she was already skeptical of that but what happened was i just got her to relax and close her eyes and kind of connect with some of the energy and what happened was she started to say, well, I guess I can kind of get a, a sense of an old lady. And all of a sudden, the big TV she had on the wall turns on, but without any sound. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. And so her eyes were closed, but the TV turns on and I can see it. And I'm like, whoa, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's a yes. We're, we're getting warmer. And so for about 15 minutes, what happened was I would ask her questions and she would kind of struggle or sometimes throw stuff. I would say, do you think you know this woman? And she'd say no, and the TV was still. And then finally, I, you know, I re-asked that question. Do you think you know this? She's like, maybe. And it started to change channels, the television. So I realized, oh, every time she gets the answer right, they change a few channels on the TV to flicker to say, yes, that's the right answer. After about 15 minutes of this, of trying to get a sense of, okay, what does this spirit want? Or, you know, do, is it? Is it an acquaintance? Is there something that needs to be dealt with? 
uh, we got interrupted. Her daughter came in and the woman was kind of impatient. She's like, well, that didn't work. And I was like, what are you talking about? That was working so well. You know, the TV was turning on and changing channel every time you got it right. We, we were getting warmer. We were getting hot. But she's like, no, no, I, you know, this, this isn't working. So basically, I would just like to know what, what do you make of that? How might you have handled that situation? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing, of course, is that, um, it's the it's the woman the woman has the right to have her own relationship or lack of same with a ghost it's um i mean she's asking for help that's one thing but it was very clear that yeah it was in some sense very closely connected to her <laughs> now the one thing that i would look for and this is something that was researched very extensively in the middle years of the 20th century some poltergeist activity is does appear to be spirits some poltergeist activity is psychokinesis on the part of some of a, of a, a living human being um, the classic form of poltergeist activity of you have a typically a teenager going through a rough a rough time of puberty. Mm. Okay, they've got all kinds of energy. It is fountaining out of every, and then they're frustrated, they're angry, they're upset. They've got or they've got some kind of issue they don't want to deal with, and that expresses itself by flinging you know flinging plates around the kitchen. Right, fire starter Drew Barrymore movie from the eighties. Right. Yeah, exactly. Child basic, starting with, things. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, but um, it, starting fires is very rare in that in that kind of thing. Typically, it's just things get flung. And it's, okay. if you can imagine, you know, a, a, an upset teenager grabbing a plate and flinging it against the wall, mm -hmm. I certainly could. Mm -hmm. um, it's just if somebody's feeling sufficiently repressed and bent or bent out of shape in one way or another, they can't actually express their feelings outwardly. Sometimes mm -hmm. it goes that way. Now, it is possible that one of the things that was going on was that this woman was a strong, untrained natural psychic who had a, a you know, a psychokinetic gift. And there was some kind of emotional conflict that she was venting out mm -hmm. in this way. That would be one thing that I'd want to look into. Of course, if that's actually what's going on and she didn't want to deal with the conflict, that would explain why, no, no, this isn't working. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now, the alternative thing is that there was some kind of karmic connection with somebody who was not currently in a body, and that this that the poltergeist was a spirit, and that there were you know the two of them had some kind of interaction that had to be worked out. Mm -hmm. And I'd want I'd want to, I mean, there you'd want to get you you want someone who had a who either either a really good transmedium or somebody who was um, who had a very strong. Um, clairvoyant gift, the second sight, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. who could see what was going on. Or, you know, a, a really good diviner might be able to do it too. Can you clarify the difference? So for folks who have not got a big magical background, what's the difference between uh, a psychic medium, a clairvoyant, and a diviner in this situation? Okay, sure. Easily done. Um, a trance medium is, is the classic sort of person who goes into trance um, a control, they have a relationship with a, with a spirit, they control is the usual term. They go into trance, the control speaks through them, and then they can give voice to any other spirits in the area. Um, it's, you know, that's been around for a very long time, and um, it's, it's a well-developed practice. Most spiritualist organizations can put you in touch with such people. Um, a clairvoyant is somebody who has what's called the second sight, who has the ability to see things in the etheric and astral levels. Different people have different kinds of clairvoyance. You might have encountered people who can read auras. That's a variety. Mm -hmm. um, and just there, there, are, there are a variety of modes of perception 
that operate that way and that allow people to see see the non-physical realms or hear the non-physical realms or things like that. I have I have no clairvoyant capacity at all, but I can feel. Um, I, I did a lot of Chinese martial arts at one point, and one of the things that develops is, is the capacity to feel energy through your skin. So, like clairsentience. Like clairsentience clair, or clairtangency is another term that I've right. that I've encountered. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So now a diviner is somebody who uses some some formal method of divination, like horary astrology, like geomancy, like the tarot, or things like that. They have some symbolic system that they use um, as a way to basically ask questions of the ob- of the unseen and get and get meaningful answers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those those are three three kinds of people, each with their own distinct gift. All of them in the sort of broad general occult field, but you know, different people have different talents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, if you let's say you or somebody you know has a poltergeist, and uh, you know, let's say one of the listeners they have a poltergeist, uh, what could a person with you know could can you address that without hiring somebody? Like, would you advise them to or not? Um, well, partly I, w- I would say um, figure out how serious the, the issue is. Mm-hmm. If it's just if they just got an, a ghost who makes knocking noises or things like that, uh, you know, try to communicate with it, see if there's something that it wants. And very often that's the I mean the classic thing is um, you know the ghost who um, wants something taken care of or wants a message carried to somebody or something like that. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing happens all the time. Mm-hmm. And if, if very often it's just somebody's trying to get your attention from the other side, and if you can give them the attention, you can find out what they want and go from there. Uh, situation solved. They go on to their next existence and all as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're doing things that look like they might get in the direction of harassment or harm, then you probably need to take stronger measures. One very simple trick that actually does a lot of good, um, this is something that's actually done in in Western magic and also in Chinese magic, curiously enough. Um, You take a little saucer and you fill it with vinegar and you leave it in the space that um, where there's some kind of problem going on. Acid vapors in the atmosphere make it very difficult for etheric force to condense in a way that can move objects. Generally, if you're facing any kind of psychic attack or um, being harassed by anything from the unseen, that's a useful step to do. Um, anything more serious than that, you really start. You really need to start looking at finding a professional. You know, it's like it's like the difference between you get a cold. Okay, we all know how to deal with a cold. You get something a little more serious. You need somebody who knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and in your book, Monsters, you talk about a whole range of these kinds of um, entities, spirits, ghosts, even angels, and, you know, possible um, approaches that you could take to respond. And then, you know, what a person might do if it's, if it's beyond that. It's a, it's a good manual for that. Now, I would love to know, we, we've spoken throughout the conversation quite a lot about um, the etheric field and uh, objects that feed the etheric body or that, um, you know, could potentially, um, you know, help banish ghosts or things like that, that are, that are uh, aspects of the etheric that we might encounter. So can you just maybe list a few of the common objects that would be considered like etherically receptive and, and which, which kinds of common materials could be considered like banishing tools? Okay. Um, to, to some extent, it depends on how you're using them, but broadly speaking, um, anything with a crystalline structure will absorb etheric energy. 
um, very easily. And that includes like crystals, it includes salt, it includes metals, especially one of the reasons that traditional in traditional Western occultism, you generally make talismans out of, out of pure metals, is that you can put an etheric charge into them and it will stick. And it will continue to radiate energies thereafter. That's what a talisman does. Um, you do not. Um, you you can now. And, and the thing is, this can also be used in a way to banish. If you want to absorb something, so you can get rid of it. Mm -hmm. um, a little bowl of kosher salt. Kosher salt is, is purer than most kinds, so that's that's good stuff to use. But a little a little bowl of salt left someplace to soak up the energy. Then you dump it into running water. <laughs> water erases its etheric energy. The mm. colder, the better. The, the best possible temperature, this has been worked out, by the way, 39 degrees. Mm. If you can get water at 39 degrees, that stuff will suck up an amazing amount of etheric energy and just mm. flow it away. So that's, yeah, um, one thing that is actually advised by certain schools of occultism to try to keep your etheric body clean and sort of, um, free of, free of the crud that builds up is to wash your body in cold water every morning with a washcloth. Mm. Yeah. Just one of those little things. Mm. Um, so water is really good for that. Um, silk is a barrier. Silk and linen actually are both very effective barriers to etheric energy. That's why when you make you make a, mag a magical talisman, you wrap it in silk, you wrap it in linen, and so you can you know the charge is kind of is kind of held in there. You don't. It's not going to be contaminated mm -hmm. by anything else. Mm -hmm. um, and there are. Of course, the whole field of aromas and incenses is overwhelmingly important when, it, when you're dealing with the etheric level. Um, a lot of the reasons why incense is used in, re in religious rites and magical workings and so on is because when you get those volatile aromatic compounds in the air, that will attune to certain etheric um, forces, strengthen some, erase others. Frankincense, if you need to purify a space, if you need that sort of high beneficial solar energy, frankincense is great. Um, if you actually want something to manifest, dittany of Crete, you will have a hard time finding it, but oregano is almost as good. Um, you burn that. It does not smell very good, but it will help things manifest. If you desperately need to erase um, noxious energies from a place, asafetida. Asafetida. No, okay. asafetida. A-S-A-F-O-E T-I-D-A, asafetida. It, it's, a, it's a plant of the onion family. It is used in some kind of Middle East cooking. I have no idea why. It stinks. Oh, dear God, it stinks. You burn asafetida, nothing will stay around. Uh, it, it, is, it is the most horribly putrid smell you can imagine, but it is the most effective etheric banisher in, in, in incense. And if you have a house or something that, has, that is infested with something, you have got to get rid of it. Um, burn that stuff. Throw in a little sulfur just for just for um, for a little extra zip, and nothing. You will wipe it totally clean. It's good mm. stuff. Mm. Okay, great. <laughs> this is good to know. So, I've read uh, through several of your writings about and your books about your daily uh, protection rituals. Your, your sort of daily half hour in the morning. And I'd love if you could just share what that is. But also, are monsters the reason you have such a strong commitment to the daily protection rituals? Like, do you think everybody needs that? Or do most folks who engage in spiritual magical stuff, are they the ones who need to do daily protection? Or does everybody need it? Well, no, first of all, I'm not everybody. And yeah. it is, not, it, you know, there's no way 
that I can lay down a rule for everyone's lives, everyone's life, you know, different people, different strokes for different folks, the whole nine yards, the, your mileage will vary. <laughs> um, if you are practicing traditional Western occultism, um, a daily banishing ritual in, in most of the traditions, a daily banishing ritual is just part. It's it's like taking a shower. Okay, you're gonna do it. It's part of the the practice. It's part of the training. It's one of the things that enables you to interact with progressively um, more um, more um, powerful, more illuminated states of being. You just you just do it. Um, in in the Golden Dawn tradition, where I had my main training, it's the Lesser Banishing Ritual, the Pentagram, and then an exercise called the Middle Pillar Ritual. You do that every single day. That purifies your your subtle bodies. It energizes you. It brings you into balance. It's just you know it's it's a basic practice. You do that, then you meditate. You do a daily divination. That's that's kind of the foundation of magical practice. Um, if you are not doing magic. Well, you know, you're prob there's probably a reason for that. Not everyone is cut out to do ceremonial magic. Not mm -hmm. everyone is cut, cut out to golden dawn magic. Different people have different spiritual needs. And for a lot of people, that whole realm of being is still a closed book. Mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the occult tradition, the idea is that, you know, we all, we all work our way up to the human level. And then we, have to, then we spend a whole bunch of lives learning about being human. Mm -hmm. And that's a long, slow process because being human is a very complex thing. I'm sure, you know, when we were when when we were other kinds of beings, we it took just just as long to figure that out too. But it's when you've actually basically got being human down and you're ready to start preparing to move on, that that, that you're going to be drawn to spirituality, you know, as distinct from just the local religion. Mm, okay. Okay. When you're actually working with your own inner life. You're not just, you know, be believing in one or more deities and doing, you know, offering the occasional prayer and going someplace on a Sunday or what have you. Um, that people, lots of people do that and don't necessarily get anywhere by it, but it's, that's appropriate. They're doing other things with their lives. Mm -hmm. But when you're, when you've reached the point, you've actually learned some, you've actually more or less got the hang of being human mm -hmm. and you're ready to start preparing for the, for the transition to the next level of being, then you're going to want, you're going to be drawn. You're going to feel that pull toward some kind of spirituality. You may, you may, this may be, you know, a life where you're sampling this and this and this and this and this, and that's cool. You know, ne your next life, you may, you may settle on something, or you may just feel really drawn. No, this is the thing. This is the one. You jump into it and go for it. You probably experienced that path in a previous life and are, and are going for it now. Mm -hmm. um, and those are the people, you know, basically let the nature of the path you follow decide what practice you're going to do. If you are, if, if the thing that calls to you is, you know, Buddhism, you're going to be spending a lot of time meditating and that's totally appropriate. And your, you know, your Buddhist teacher will fill you in on any other practices you need to do to, um, to get that into place. If you're doing something else, you're doing something else. If you're doing golden dawn magic, well, you know, I've got some books on that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you'll be learning how to do the lesser and the, <laughs> the lesser banisher. The le yeah, exactly. <laughs> then you're going to, you're going to learn the LBRP as everyone calls it. You're going to learn how to do your banishing rituals. You're going to learn how to do certain other practices. You're going to spend time meditating. You're going to um, study a lot of very strange books <laughs> and, and it's good. And it's going to take you cool places. Mm -hmm. So let's say, so a lot of the listeners of the Numinous podcast, let's say they are uh, maybe a daily oracle card puller and uh, a monthly lunar ceremony and, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
let's say every other week they're doing a bit of a trance journey, you know, this kind of thing. And so do you, do you think daily protection is important to these non-ordinary things? Or could you, could you say, okay, I'm going to be doing some pretty intense trance work coming up soon. And I'm, I'm going to um, maybe double down on some protection in this site specific kind of way, or do you think it needs to be ongoing? Well, it, it, again, it depends. It depends on um, what what specific path you're following, what kind of work you're going to be doing, and because there there are ways to do protective work that don't have to do with ritual magic. I mean, there are um, you, some, some years back after I'd after I'd done um, a pretty thorough, I've spent about twenty years working on golden dawn magic. I decided I need to broaden my horizons a bit, and I studied a range of other magical practices. And one of the things I practiced, I, I've studied and practiced for a while, was old fashioned southern conjure. And American folk magic, basically. Mm -hmm. And there, you're doing things with mojo bags, and you're doing things with baths. Mm. You know, you have a bath with certain things in it, and you wash yourself with it, and you take a bucket of the water and throw it against a tree, and you do certain other things, and that will, um, you know, that's their protective ritual. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not the same thing at all. There are other folk magic traditions where what you're doing for protection is you're making, you know, you're putting these little herbal amulets in various places to yeah. protect your home or to protect you. Okay. Garlic. Um, hanging and, the garlic. Yeah, exactly. Around. Garlic. <laughs> you know, gar- garlic is great. Um, it's it. Th- this sounds like a joke, but it's not. The one country in Europe that, as far as I can tell, has no vampire lore at all is Italy. <laughs> you know it sounds like a joke but but there we go you know um yeah but yeah definitely that that that, that garlic pizza is good for you if you have if you have vampire problems <laughs> okay so you've been working and you've been researching monsters for a long time do you have you had some encounters that were scary i have i have had the encounters that I've had with monstrous beings on the whole have been spooky rather than scary. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell, I'll tell, I'll tell you one, one story, which is particular, one of my particular favorites. This happened, this happened back when I was in Seattle again. And I was at that time heavily involved in a lodge called the Independent Order of Oddfellows. Mm-hmm. And no, I'm not making it up. They, they still exist. Oh, well, we've got them in town here, my friend, actually. Yeah, yeah. I bet yep. you do. They, they, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a greater, it's a great organization. They have, so they have really cool old rituals, and I have a lot of fun with it. And, but I, I, was, I was also learning how lodge work goes because, of course, there's, there's an equivalent. There are similar rituals in certain branches of magic, and I wanted to get a, basic, a foundation in basic lodge work before I started dabbling with those. So, but and I ended up, it was one of those things. I was the, the, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time, and most of the other people in the um, lodge were much older than I was, and I basically ended up running the building for a few years. And so I'd be down, I'd be in the building and downstairs we'd have, um, I, I actually have, I actually was involved in starting a magical lodge at one point. We were meeting downstairs and we'd be in there and I had the keys. I knew what was going on. I had the schedule. I knew that the upstairs was locked and the lights were off and everything. And we'd be downstairs and all of a sudden you'd hear footsteps. Hmm very definite footsteps moving across the lodge hall above. And the first couple of times, I literally went up to see if there was an intruder. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing. The place was completely locked and sealed. And then I was started paying attention to how the footsteps were moving. Hmm. And I realized, holy crap, they're going through the odd fellow ritual up there. <laughs> There's no one in the room, but somebody is walking through 
certain ritual actions that are involved in opening an Oddfellows Lodge. And I realized that what was going on is some of the old Oddfellows, who they'd basically given their lives to the order. They'd spent, that was one of the things they did constantly in their lives. They were still in the hall. Mm. And mm. they were still of a night going through their old familiar ritual. Hmm. And it was kind of it was kind of nice. The one thing the one thing I figured out, if I needed to go into the upstairs hall when they were doing, there's a, there, basically there's a formal way that you enter if you're entering an open lodge. You know, you have to make a certain sign at the door. You have to make a certain sign, you know, to the presiding officer and so on. And I started doing that whenever I had to go into the upstairs hall at night when nobody else was there. And everything just things got along better after that they were saying okay you're cool you're cool don't worry yeah so yeah that's that's my that's my great ghost story nobody that i know of uh, actually no one i know one person who did actually see something but she was a clairvoyant she was a witch who was um mm. involved with one of the groups that met there for a while and she was she at one point said wow there was this there was this old guy and she described him and i was going whoa because the guy in question had passed away from liver cancer about a year previously Oh, and yeah. she'd seen him. She had never met the guy and described him perfectly. Mm. So, okay. So you made the distinction. It's like spooky, but not scary. Spooky, but not scary. Still kind of in this realm, though, of fear, right? There's kind of a spectrum of fear. So I'm just curious there, in general. There's a, there's a, there's a, there, you get a, there's a cold, sh- a cold chill that goes up the spine. Oh, yeah, when you, I feel when it. you hear those, when you hear those footsteps falling and the room is empty. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel it as we're talking about it, right? Like, I'm, it's exciting, but it is also a little unsettling because I can feel all the, like, if my hairs were radar, right? They're all standing on it, like, mm-hmm. So how have you learned to cope with fear? Like, how do you manage that emotion if or when that appears mm-hmm. to you? Well, well the, first, the first thing to do is remember that emotions are emotions. They're, they're, they're perceptions. This is, this is actually something, meditation is really good for this, okay? Um, because you can, it's fairly easy when you meditate regularly to get into the point, the, the state where you feel emotion and you don't, it doesn't swallow you. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think of some time when you've had a strong emotion and it just literally washes over you and swallows you up like a wave and you can't think. Mm-hmm. You're just stuck in the emotion. And that can be a really cool thing to, to let yourself do under certain very pleasant situations. Mm-hmm. But um, in the case of if you're afraid, if you're angry, um, you know, th- there's, there are emotions where it's not a good idea to be swallowed. And so meditation makes it easy to kind of get a little distance on it and say, oh, I'm experiencing fear. Well, okay. And then go on and do what you're going to do anyway. Mm-hmm. That takes practice. But um, just remembering you are not your emotions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Your emotions are things that you perceive. Mm-hmm. They're not things that you are. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're feeling frightened. Okay. That doesn't mean you have to be afraid. You can just feel the fear mm-hmm. and look at, look at the thing you're afraid of and go, okay, yeah, I'm scared of that. You know, I still need to do X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same is true. You know, you can get really, really angry and then stop and say, no, I'm feeling anger. That's mm-hmm. not me. That's the emotion that I'm feeling. I'm still going to keep my mouth shut. Because there's nothing to be gained by picking a fight in this situation, irritating though that is. <laughs> and that's 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 a basic skill. Um, actually, um, the Kabbalion talks about that. 
If you're familiar with the Cavalion, yeah, familiar with, by the, by William Walker Atkinson, aka the Three Initiates, um, it talks about emotional alchemy, about the ways you can you can learn to step back a little bit from your emotions and balance them against each other. Um, it's a useful thing to know. It's been part of part of occult teaching for a very long time, of course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, in terms of monsters, then, if uh, let's say a listener encounters something non-ordinary. And they've moved through the experience of uh, feeling the emotion, but moving into action. If there was kind of a back of the napkin recommendation <laughs> for what they should do in that moment, let's say, you know, they think they see a chimera or they think they, there's a demon, you know, because it keeps showing up in the woods where they live or something like that. What would kind of be your back of the napkin, like, here's your first aid for that situation? Okay. The first thing to remember is that um, the monster may be none of your business. Um, you, the fact that you know, the fact that you see a monster does not mean that you have to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. um, it may just be on its way somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And in that case, you know, under most circumstances, unless you're dealing with something hostile, something obviously hostile, your best bet is just stay still, pay attention. It's like with a wild animal. Mm -hmm. You know, if you were out in the woods in back and all of a sudden you saw a deer, mm -hmm. would you have to do anything about the deer? No, you'd, you'd do the sensible thing. You would shut up and stand still and hope that you didn't spook it because you'd be interested in walking and walking by. Okay, here's this, here's this, you know, bizarre creature that looks like the Jersey Devil or something that's walking by. Okay, you know, okay, cool. You, you're, you're one of the lucky ones. You've actually seen a monster. Right. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you see a yeah, chupacabra, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you see a chupacabra. <laughs> you, you know, don't don't spook the poor thing. Just pay attention to it, mm -hmm. um, and watch it, and you know, and see see how it. If it attempts to attack you, that you know, if there are, there are, or issues of potential hostility, that's something you don't want a back of the napkin response to. There's a material on that in my book, and um, you know, I really, there is no one response in a situation like that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, you have very comprehensive chapters, one on hunting monsters and one on ritual magic to deal with monsters and to protect yourself. Yeah. If you've got if you've got the necessary skills, um, you know, if you've done if you've done pseudo magical training, you know what to do. There are things you can do quite readily um, that will put, you know, anything uh, up to and including a demon to you know, send it on its way. Mm -hmm. And um, if you don't, well, you know, you've got there are other options. But yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it, you know, it's like saying, well, what do you do if you get in a medical emergency? Well, that depends on what kind of emergency. Mm -hmm. Right. Start closing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, John, for, uh, well, first of all, for writing the book. It's such an important uh, uh, reference guide for those well, of us who just, you know, even if you suspect there might be something funny going on in your home or if things are coming up when you're doing your trance work, you're getting a little deeper into your ritual magic work. There, you know, there are other inhabitants of these mm -hmm. worlds that we may want to, you know, brush up and get educated on. And I find this a really excellent reference. So, um, well, thank you. thanks for sharing your stories and expertise. Today. Well, sure thing. Sure thing. I, I thank you very much for having me on. I, I enjoy it. I always enjoy it. Excellent. Hope we'll do it again sometime. Let's plan on it. And that is all we have to say about that for today. Aside from the fact that it bears repeating quite explicitly that if you don't understand what the etheric body is, then you will no doubt be quite perplexed if you ever have to deal with a monster. So, number one, buy the book. 
Monsters, An Investigator's Guide to Magical Beings. Two, look in my show notes for all the links to the resources that John has mentioned. Once again, super generous with his knowledge and uh, research. And three, be sure to stock your pantry with vinegar, kosher salt, and asafoetida. Today, I'd like to thank my listeners in Nunavut, Canada's vast Arctic and largest province by territory. Canoe Pete, thank you. How delightful to see downloads in Nunavut in the stats. Um, that, that totally charms me. It's time to reach out to me if you're thinking about coming on Quest this spring. There are always a few people who leave it to the last second. Really, I'd prefer you gave me as much notice as possible. Arrival date is June 19th. So exciting. For all the details and to place your deposit, go to my website, carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-B-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.